This is Digital Health Today, episode 37. Artificial intelligence is going to have such incredible implications, especially in healthcare. And and this is not something that is a distant future. This is something that is now. I mean, we already have solutions that in internal studies are finding cancer two years earlier than humans are. And we already have solutions that in the wild are are performing x-ray reads more accurately than human doctors. And these things are only going to grow in advance. Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. Be sure to check out the Accenture Health Tech Innovation Challenge. Accenture is bringing together startups, life sciences companies and healthcare organizations to tackle the world's biggest healthcare issues and the second year of the challenge is underway. Check out how the Health Tech Innovation Challenge engages with cutting-edge startups that have a focus on solving healthcare and life sciences problems. Apply online by clicking on the show notes for this episode or simply search for Accenture Health Tech Innovation Challenge. But hurry, applications close on September 1st. Welcome back. This is Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders working to make the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 37. I am back from vacation and ready to go. I took my two daughters over to a part of the world I've not spent much time in before. We explored the northwest coast of the U.S., going from Seattle to Vancouver, and then up along the coast of Alaska, exploring the glaciers and the wildlife. It was a bit cooler than other summer vacations, but it was a great experience, and we got to spend time with some of our family, which is always important. Now it's August, schools are getting back in gear, and the days are getting much shorter, and that means one thing. Conference season is almost here. That's right. Lots of great meetings coming up this year, and there are so many that I don't want to miss. I'm just looking at our events page here. I see some great meetings like Leslie Saxon's Body Computing Conference. That's coming up on the 22nd of September. That's a great one-day meeting. You can hear from Leslie and some of the work she's doing at USC in Episode 9. Health 2.0 is also coming up in October. That's the 1st to the 4th. In fact, we've got Matthew Holt, who's known on the Twitters as at Bolty Boy. He's the co-founder of Health 2.0, and he's joining us in an upcoming episode. And he's going to encourage me to change the name of this show, I fear, from Digital Health Today to Smack Health Today. He'll explain all that when he's here on the podcast. A lot further east, over in Estonia, in fact, is the eHealth Talent Meeting. That's the 16th to the 18th of October. You can hear about some of the incredible work being done in Estonia in episode 28 with Aina Vikso. And there's so many other great meetings. For example, the Exponential Medicine Conference by our friend Dr. Daniel Kraft. That's on the 5th to the 8th of November out in sunny San Diego. We've also got Frontiers Health on the 16th to the 17th of November in Berlin. The list goes on. Check out all these and more on our events page, digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash events. And if you have an event, be sure to go and enter it into our site. It's free to add your event to that page. So check it out, digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash events. Our guest in this episode is Kevin Lyman, an extremely talented entrepreneur and computer scientist based out of San Francisco. He's worked at companies ranging from Hasbro Toys, to Microsoft and SpaceX, and he's founded several companies of his own as well. Now he's applying his ability to create leading products to the healthcare sector, and he's the COO and lead scientist for Enlytic, a startup that develops deep learning products to make doctors faster and more accurate. Kevin and I met at the Cube Tech Fair, which was held in Berlin, Germany in May of this year, and he pitched his company, Enlytic, to the one and only Steve Wozniak of Apple fame. That competition landed his company the grand prize of 1 million euros. Kevin's going to tell us about that experience as well as help break down some of the details and capabilities of artificial intelligence. And he's going to explain the differences between machine learning and deep learning. Don't worry, you don't have to be a computer scientist to understand this conversation. 
But with so many terms floating around for a set of technologies that is on track to be the most significant development of our lifetime, we need to peel back the curtain a little bit on AI to understand what it is a little bit better. Then we get into how all this is making an impact in healthcare and how people and organizations are collaborating to create and implement new solutions. Be sure to get all the show notes, videos, and links at our website at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 37. While you're there, please take a second to subscribe to the podcast. You can do that right from your phone. Just visit the website, look for your preferred platform on the podcast page, and select the Apple, SoundCloud, or Stitcher icons, whatever you prefer, and you can subscribe to this podcast right there. Okay, now let's tune into the conversation with Kevin Lyman. Kevin, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. Kevin, I've told the listeners a little bit about you. Can you fill in some of the blanks and tell me a bit about your personal journey? Yeah, absolutely. I guess I kind of started in engineering and computer science uh, in high school. I I had the experience uh, at a very young age to build a lot of really cool stuff. And that really got me into uh, the importance of actually making things and applying them to important problem solving. And uh, by the time I got to to college, I was very eager to kind of apply that to a lot of different areas. And so I, I did a lot of exploration. And and so I took a couple of years off uh, while I was in college to kind of uh, work at a lot of different industries. And and so I, I did some work at Hasbro designing toys, uh, in particular, high-tech concept toys. Uh, and then I went to SpaceX, where I did electronic sensor design for the Falcon rocket and the Dragon space capsule. And uh, from there, I went to Microsoft. I worked on Excel, uh, particularly as a program manager with a focus on redesigning user interfaces and user experiences. With all that experience, uh, I had started a few companies. So I had started a consulting firm uh, with my friends. And uh, we had a big focus there on winning a lot of business plan competitions and hackathons and related competitions. And eventually wound up using all of those winnings to start a couple of other companies of our own. I had raised some money for those companies, which I used to uh, bring them out to San Francisco. And that's where one of my co-founders from the consulting firm had introduced me to Jeremy, the uh, founder of Inlytic. And uh, I was nearing the point of exiting those startups, and I really just instantly fell in love with Jeremy's mission and his vision and the technology that he was dreaming of applying to this incredibly important problem, uh, like the fact that you know roughly one in five uh, people that get some kind of radiological service are misdiagnosed. So they're treated for a disease they don't even have. Uh, which, of course, can have negative consequences and no matter what costs the health system a lot of money. Uh, and another quarter of people have their diagnosis missed altogether. You're jumping ahead of me, Kevin. You're, you're answering a bunch of my questions before I even had a chance <laughs> to ask them. So tell me, so when did you actually make then the decision to join Inlytic and what role did you join as? So I had joined Inlytic uh, almost right after graduating uh, in around the May time frame of uh, 2015. And uh, Jeremy had been doing a lot of uh, early development work up to that point and, you know, really had fleshed out a lot of the mission and vision of the company and laid a lot of the groundwork. And uh, I had joined originally as the first forward deployed engineer, having the role of actually going on site and being the person to talk to the doctors and the clinicians and uh, other individuals involved to kind of understand how we can apply our technology to their needs but then also go ahead and integrate it into their systems and sit with them to make sure that they understand how to use it. Uh, And that really put me in a a great position to actually understand the problems that we're solving and eventually grow into uh, more of a leadership role. 
Before that, did you have any experience at all in healthcare? Did you have any sort of personal experience with it? Or was that entirely a new discovery when you met Jeremy and heard about the problems that he was working to address and solve with machine learning, deep learning? I definitely had personal experience with it in that uh, I unfortunately come from a family with uh, quite a history of uh, a wide variety of unfortunate diseases. I actually uh, grew up caring for my mother who had multiple sclerosis and unfortunately, she had it to the point that she was bedbound my you know entire childhood uh, life, and so that was a very close problem for me. And on top of that, uh, you know, my my uncle was diabetic. Uh, unfortunately, eventually passed from that. Uh, my grandmother uh, from lung cancer. Uh, my other uh, grandfather on my father's side from you know cardiac heart disease. And so I've kind of always been surrounded by all of these incredibly important problems and have always wanted to solve them. But uh, Inlytic was you know, really my first uh, exposure to really actually being in that industry, aside from just having personal experience with it. When you did join Inlytic and you, uh, and you spent the time, as you said, in the field, working with doctors and nurses and clinicians, trying to understand the problems, what did you find that experience like? And, and what sort of learning curve did you climb as you went from being a, a carer and a family member uh, and seeing these things through those eyes, and then also then looking at and taking your computer science background and your problem-solving capability and working there at the forefront of medicine? What was that experience like and what did you learn from it? Oh, it was pretty incredible. I mean, uh, I, I spent a lot of my childhood in and out of hospitals, but uh, on the side of a person visiting a patient. But this was really my first time being on the side of seeing what happens on you know the other side of the table, behind the closed doors. Uh, I'm the kind of person that likes to jump headfirst into something and experience it all at once, and and really you know try to learn as much as I can as quickly as I can. And that's absolutely what this kind of experience gave me. And a, a lot of things really kind of shocked me. Uh, some for the better, some for the worse. And one thing that you know was very alarming to me was, uh, especially given my computer science background, was how out of date uh, a lot of their technology is and their infrastructure. And that's actually a pretty incredibly important aspect of what they do. I mean, especially as it pertains to radiology and diagnostics, almost their entire job relies on being able to efficiently move data around and process it such that people can see it and act on it. And the kinds of systems that they were using are things that are built in the 80s. And they're all just afraid to update it because if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that, that actually creates a lot of problems. You know, Beyond massive inefficiencies that are brought, uh, it means that people are getting substantially worse care in a lot of cases because glitches happen. Kevin, when it comes to artificial intelligence, a lot of people use the terms artificial intelligence and deep learning and machine learning interchangeably. And I know that we have a broad range of listeners out there, various levels. We certainly do have computer scientists who are listening in. Can you break down those three terms for me just to get the basics down? Because you've, you've mentioned artificial intelligence already. I think you've mentioned deep learning, machine learning. Can you break down the difference between those three and how they interrelate? And then we can get into some of the applications of uh, deep learning as it applies to healthcare. Yeah, absolutely. And this is something that has been an interesting exercise for me because uh, as a computer scientist, I'm sure uh, many other computer scientists are going to be upset with a lot of the ways that I explain things. But depending on the kind of crowd that you're talking to, it's it's important to abstract things at different levels. Artificial intelligence is kind of the easiest way to portray a lot of the work that we do in this field because at the highest level, artificial intelligence really just refers to all sorts of tools 
that can be used to make a machine store information and be able to act on that information and intelligently retrieve knowledge. So in a sense, a database is almost a sort of artificial intelligence in that it's able to store information. It may not be able to act on that information, but you're giving a machine the ability to know things. But there are a lot of things that are a subset of artificial intelligence. So machine learning, for example, is kind of one tool within the artificial intelligence toolbox. And machine learning refers to algorithms that can be used to enable a system to make connections between data that it has uh, and kind of understand links and act on that information. And machine learning is really very applicable, I would say, to being able to tune something like a linear equation to understand how to get from A to B when it's not such a complex link between the two. And I think a really good example of that is something like a credit score. A credit score, as it's done today, can pretty easily be modeled as uh, some sort of linear equation. You can think that uh, maybe a credit score is just based on the person's age and their net worth. Obviously, it's a lot more than that, but for the sake of explanation, let's say it's just those two things. If that's the case, then you can pull data from a thousand people whose credit score you know and whose age and net worth you know, and you can, uh, for each of those, give to a system each of those factors. And you can look at it like AX plus BY equals Z, where X is their age and Y is their net worth and Z is the credit score that they were assigned. And then when you run a machine learning algorithm on it, it's basically going to try every possible combination of A and B until when it multiplies all those things out, it gets the correct credit score for all the people you showed it. So it's essentially just tuning variables until it understands the link between the input variables and the output variables. Okay, so we've got AI so far and machine learning. So AI, you're saying, could be used very broadly for any sort of information knowledge that a machine provides to you, and machine learning as a subset of that. I read an article, actually, as I was preparing for this call. It described it as three concentric rings, with AI being the largest machine learning sitting inside of that. So machine learning is where it goes through these a variety of calculations. So I know that we can get into really technical descriptions of these, and I don't think we need to write it as a paper. So I appreciate that some of the scientists, as you say, might be angry with, <laughs> might not like necessarily the characterization, but we need to make sure that we are clear about how these things relate. So then we've got deep learning. So what can you tell me about deep learning? So deep learning is the, the third concentric circle, the one that would be visualized as being inside of the machine learning circle. And deep learning refers to a series of machine learning algorithms that were inspired by uh, the way that the human brain is thought to work. And what we mean by that is that essentially you're training a system to not only look for, for how to tune variables, but also how to identify those variables in the first place. And it does that by looking at complex data sets and looking at very, very basic representations of the data that it's looking at. Uh, so if you input a picture, uh, it might look at every little block of nine pixels at a time. And it's looking for very simple patterns that probably don't mean anything. But when it sees those patterns, it'll then bubble it up to another layer uh, of calculations that's looking for patterns of patterns. And then when it finds connections there, it'll look for patterns of patterns of patterns, and so on and so forth, 
until it's able to have a very complex understanding of very basic things. Uh, sorry, or, or maybe even the other way around. But essentially, we say that that's inspired by the way the human brain works, because we actually think that that's pretty much how people see and make sense of the things we're looking at. We understand simple concepts, and we look at patterns of those concepts in order to understand them. That's more or less uh, how deep learning works. And you can see why it's so applicable to so many different things, because it enables us to put in very complicated data and come up with an equation that understands it, even if we as people don't know how to model that with handcrafted rules. Okay. First of all, let's talk about the data, because all three definitions or descriptions that you just provided all relate to data sets. There are challenges around organizing that data. We talk a lot about how data is a valuable asset, but a lot of organizations really don't seem to understand how to leverage the value of that asset. What's missing in terms of their understanding of the data sets? And what are some of the challenges around the quality and the quantity of the data that companies are facing? Well, I think that a big part of the problem is honestly education. It's such a new thing that people just haven't had the time to realize how valuable the data is that they're working with. And so they just haven't put together infrastructures that are able to store it and manage it in a reasonable way. In essence, people just don't realize that pretty much anything that could be data could have some kind of use down the line, uh, especially now that AI systems, uh, particularly with the, the growth of deep learning algorithms, can be used to replicate uh, or automate a lot of human processes. Uh, and I think that as people are starting to realize that, they're starting to put more efforts and more investment into making sure that all of that data is captured. But I would say that once you have that realization, the most important part is to actually start building out the infrastructure to capture it. So anything that stores information, you probably shouldn't be throwing that information out. You should probably be keeping it somewhere and you should be labeling it with metadata that describes it in a way that in the future we can actually go back and refer to it. Um, and you should be storing all of that information in a format that is easily accessible. Like if it's in some kind of cloud solution, then it's probably pretty likely that in the future it will be easy to access. But if it's all on tape decks that are scattered throughout your basement, then it's probably going to be really hard to access it. And I think that one of the other really important things to realize is that different kinds of data can be used together in uh, ways that you probably didn't realize. And I think a good example of that actually does come from healthcare, that uh, a lot of hospitals will put their radiology data in one database and their pathology data in another database. But having them all in the same place enables you to train systems that can predict outcomes which people may not have realized in the past, but it's a very real possibility now. And so people should really start optimizing their, their systems for that kind of use case, regardless of the industry they're in. Great. So thanks for addressing the question around data and describing deep learning specifically. Let's talk about data and deep learning in healthcare. What are some of the implications of deep learning in the healthcare space? And then we can lead on to some of the things that you're working on through Analytic. To me, three of the biggest things that we're going to see are massive improvements in accuracy, efficiency, and access. And from an accuracy point of view, human doctors are very good. I mean, they, they train their whole life to master a profession. Uh, and I definitely want to respect and acknowledge the fact that, that most doctors are very good at what they do. But unfortunately, a lot of medical processes are just extremely difficult. 
There's just so much that can go wrong in the human body, and there just isn't enough historical data to understand everything that's possible. And so mistakes are made. And I think that uh, artificial intelligence is going to go an incredibly long way towards helping human doctors read cases more accurately. And then from an efficiency point of view, you can imagine that if you're given some amount of pre-processing up front, it takes a lot less time to actually read that case. Now, one of the first pilot projects that we did was uh, processing wrist x-rays and putting circles around all the fractures using our models uh, as they detect them. So that when a radiologist looks at it, they can automatically see where the fracture is right away. And uh, as you'd imagine, that makes them quite a bit faster in identifying uh, those abnormalities. In particular, we found that we made them about 20% faster, which means 20% lower costs for the hospital or radiology group when dealing with that kind of case, which means they have more money now that can be spent on other things. And the last part of that was access. And, and I think that this is probably where we have the biggest room for impact. 70% of the world doesn't have access to you know, good healthcare, particularly within diagnostics. But as we make these systems very cheap and very scalable, there's no reason why people uh, in remote parts of the world can't get access to high quality healthcare. Even if there's no doctors in some remote country, we can build systems that can offer them the level of healthcare that they actually need. And we could do so at incredibly low cost that, you know, I think is incredibly meaningful. Probably beyond those three things, the most interesting thing that I've seen is the idea of predictive uh, healthcare, that, that we can actually kind of see things happen well before they would have happened. And particularly as it pertains to Enlytic, we've done a lot of research in detecting cancers early. And in a lot of our internal research, we've shown that uh, our models are often finding lung cancer, for example, two years earlier than human radiologists are. And that obviously has incredibly massive implications for all sorts of cancers. And I think we're going to see that for all sorts of diseases and all sorts of other processes as well. We'll get right back to the interview. But first, I wanted to tell you more about the Accenture Health Tech Innovation Challenge. You may already know that Accenture is a leading global professional services company offering services from strategy and consulting to digital transformation and technology. But do you know what Accenture is doing to tackle the world's biggest health issues? After the success of last year's Health Tech Innovation Challenge, Accenture is continuing to develop this event and bring together startups, life sciences companies, and healthcare organizations. And the best part is, you can apply to be a part of it too. You heard that right. Accenture's Health Tech Innovation Challenge is now in full swing. If you're a growth stage company seeking access to the top decision makers of large established companies and you have a beta product to demonstrate, Accenture invites you to apply to this year's challenge. And get this, the finalists will be invited to compete in San Francisco at the Startup Health Festival on Monday, January 8, 2018. Applications are open now, but don't delay. The submissions close on September 1, 2017. Get full details on their website by searching for Accenture Health Tech Innovation Challenge or simply click on the links in the show notes for this episode. Now let's jump back to the conversation. So let's talk specifically about Enlytic. The, the company was founded by Jeremy Howard. He's an Australian data scientist. I know he's a faculty member at Singularity University. He's formed multiple companies. He's uh, in, involved in the uh, World Economic Forum and really esteemed person. As a matter of fact, I, I watched a, a video that he did for TED Talks. It's a little bit dated now, I think, and, and since it's 2014, <laughs> but you know, because things are moving so quickly. But a really highly regarded individual data scientist in the uh, academic and scientific and and healthcare community. 
He founded Analytic. And what is it that you guys are really focused on doing? What's the core principle or the core value proposition that you guys are offering? So everybody here is incredibly driven by the idea of impacting patient outcomes. And our core mission as a company is to do exactly that, but using artificial intelligence and deep learning technologies to do so. And uh, as a company, we developed various applications of AI and healthcare by working very closely with doctors and other healthcare professionals to understand what problems are not only clinically and economically impactful, but also technically feasible to build given the current state of the art of AI. And usually a lot of our solutions fall into a couple of categories, triage solutions, which can route cases efficiently uh, throughout an institution based on the findings that our models found in them in order to bring a lot of organizational and operational efficiencies and real-time clinical support tools, which actively assist a doctor as they're reading a case by doing things like pointing out abnormalities and further characterizing them. Uh, And we do all of these things with the hope of uh, making faster, earlier, and more accurate diagnostics. And where are you guys in the development of your product? So uh, I would say we're at varying stages uh, because we work on a lot of different products. Uh, and so the, the two that we have invested the majority of our efforts into up to this point are chest x-ray triaging or reading chest x-rays and determining normal from abnormal and furthermore generating a differential diagnosis and lung cancer screening, which looks specifically at chest CTs, so 3D volumes and identifies and characterizes suspicious pulmonary nodules. Within those two areas, uh, on the chest X-ray tool, uh, we're very, very far along on that. Uh, We long ago vastly exceeded uh, human performance at reading chest X-rays. And our goal there is, is very ambitious because we're trying to identify any possible reason why a chest X-ray could require clinical follow-up, which of course there's thousands, tens of thousands of reasons why that may be the case. Uh, And chest x-rays are the most commonly taken diagnostic image in the world. So it's an incredibly impactful problem to to work on. And to that regard, we are currently working to deploy that technology in a couple of different countries around the world, uh, in particular in Australia and China, uh, as well as uh, now Japan and a couple of other countries. And what we've seen there, uh, we do a lot of what we call blind tests. Uh, We're we're probably, uh, I'd say, the only medical deep learning company that does this. But we deploy our model with a new hospital or radiology provider as part of our very early conversations. And we let them run as many chest x-rays as they want through it. And then they can tell us how well we did. Uh, So we have no information until they tell us how well we did on the test. And uh, every time we've done this, we've found that even with none of their data to train against, uh, we start off by being about 16% more accurate than than their doctors uh, as of our most recent tests. And once we're given some of their data to further train on, we go up to being about 40% more accurate than average doctors at doing that kind of uh, analysis. Wait a minute. So I want to understand that. So even before you have any data that they're looking at, you're 16% more accurate, not as accurate, but 16% more accurate than their doctors? Yep. And, uh, and that's because I, I should further clarify that the system was trained on data, just not from them at that point, because we, the way that we do our development, we train our systems on data that we've collected from our partners all around the world to get a very you know, global understanding of how these problems are handled. And then when we go to a new partner, 
uh, and we go to deploy with them, we take some of their data as well and we calibrate against that uh, using algorithms known as transfer learning. But we do that because every population has a different distribution of abnormalities. They have different anatomical variations. They may have different equipment that they use or different technical procedures that are used to scan them. They may even have different definitions of what makes an abnormality an abnormality. Like cardiomegaly or uh, an enlarged heart uh, in some countries uh, means that the ratio of the width of the heart to the width of the thoracic cage is 0.5. But in other countries, it might be a different number. But we need to be able to account for all of these variations, and we need to have confidence that our system can accurately operate in that environment. And so we take that data to, to transfer learn against. But even before that happens, before we've ever seen their population, we see that we're about 16% more accurate. And then once we have the data, it goes up to about 40 that's incredible, Kevin. That's that's really uh, fantastic numbers and, and great success there. So have you found that there are any parts of the world that are more open to uh, working with you and more accepting of this sort of technology? Uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, that's why we've adopted a very, uh, a very global strategy to our development. What it really comes down to is how safe people feel about sharing their data for the use in developing these sorts of systems. I would say that very understandably, a lot of countries in the Western world, like uh, the United States and Canada, are very careful with their data and uh, very much don't want to share a lot of that information. And to that regard, we ensure that everything we do is fully HIPAA compliant. Uh, We never look at patient uh, identifier information. All of that is always removed before we do anything. But there's still an air of uh, concern in that area by a lot of hospitals and other groups in that area. Whereas uh, in a lot of other countries, uh, people aren't as concerned or skeptical of new technological systems coming into their infrastructure or their ecosystem. And so uh, we've seen a lot of success in countries like China and, uh, and Brazil in being able to rapidly gather data like this and work with it to develop models. But in terms of just acceptance of AI in general as a diagnostic tool, I would say that we're seeing the whole world become a lot more accepting of that, that you know, everybody is kind of together starting to realize that uh, this makes sense and we should probably start uh, investing in that kind of technology. Yeah, I love that you've taken such a global approach to how you're uh, deploying this. I see on your website, E-N-L-I-T-I-C, Enlitic, Enlitic.com. Uh, you've got some some announcements and news on here about how you're working in China. You've mentioned the fact that you're working in Canada and the U.S. What other countries and what other parts of the world have you deployed into? Australia would be the, the biggest uh, in that our, our biggest partner, Capital Health, uh, second largest radiology provider in Australia was one of our biggest investors and and continues to be an incredible partner to test these sorts of solutions with. We're moving now into Japan. I actually just got back from, I spent last week in Tokyo working there with uh, a number of potential partners to set up deployments there uh, over the course of this year. We're looking now at a lot of work in Europe, uh, in particular in Germany. Uh, Having been there for Cube certainly helped uh, meet a lot of very interesting groups there that would like to work with us. I believe in September I'll be in uh, in Helsinki talking about working on some deployments there in in Scandinavia, and beyond that, of course, you know the United States. We have a number of partners here that we're working with, mostly for the sake of uh, testing a lot of our solutions. Like right now, we're doing clinical trial on our lung cancer solutions to kind of validate the early detection 
component of what we're doing. And, uh, and so we've had a number of very strong partners in the U.S. for that kind of use case. I think now we're, we're starting to look at some developing countries as well because it's you know very important to us to give back and give access to this technology. And so we've had a number of discussions with uh, countries in Africa that uh, we may be starting to deploy a lot of our technology with uh, as well on a gratis basis. Well, I'm sure as a result of this podcast, you're going to get even more. I know I get contacted by a lot of people who are working on great solutions to serve underserved populations around the world. And a lot of people are coming from various countries inside Africa and, and other parts of the world to develop those solutions. So uh, thank you for prioritizing that because there is a, a huge opportunity there as well as a huge need that I'm glad that you're working to address. But I'm sure your technology has been welcomed by many people across the healthcare spectrum. But I'm also sure that you've met with a lot of resistance and a lot of detractors. I want to talk about both, but let's take the resistance head on. What challenges have you encountered? From whom? I don't mean names, obviously, but what sort of factors have been stacked against you? And how did you as people and as a company work to overcome them? Well, uh, when the company was first started, uh, we went to RSNA, the uh, largest radiology uh, conference in the world. Uh, it occurs every year in November. And by that point, the company was about three months old. And uh, we were pretty much the first people doing medical deep learning. And everybody there thought that we were insane, uh, that there's no way that computers can possibly analyze data to the same degree of accuracy as radiologists. Uh, at that point, it wasn't quite fear. Uh, it was more just skepticism, uh, and they thought we were crazy. But we went back a year later uh, in 2015, and we started to see that a couple of other companies are starting to do this too. And uh, it started to lend some credence to the the kind of work we were hoping to do. And at that point, the fear kind of shifted to kind of the job loss argument that now radiologists are scared because you know they don't want to lose their job to this kind of AI. And you know our answer to that is that we're not trying to replace people's jobs. We're trying to augment their jobs to make them more accurate and efficient. And we're trying to do a lot of the work that they don't want to do. Like one of the ways we use our models, uh, we use natural language processing to summarize patient histories in order to point out things of interest so that they don't need to read tens of pages of clinical text to glean the same insight. So really what we're doing there is saving them time, not trying to automate their whole job. And Fast forwarding a year beyond that, in 2016, we found that now there's a, a lot of interest in the space. Tons of companies are, are trying to look at uh, doing AI in healthcare, big companies, small companies. And so now everybody kind of realizes at that point that artificial intelligence in healthcare is uh, an inevitability. It's going to happen. And fortunately for us, uh, we have a very respected name in that field. But even being respected, I'd say the, the biggest concern at this point for ourselves and everybody else doing AI for healthcare is around the accuracy and you know what happens when the system gets it wrong and how do we validate that performance. And to that regard, we've done a great deal of work in crafting our deployment strategy, modeling it around the way that clinical trials are run, actually, because the whole purpose of a clinical trial is to validate and get buy-in for medical devices and drugs and such. But the point is, we, we kind of phase it out in these ways that have progressively more impact on the patient and progressively give them more validation information about how well we're performing uh, in order to settle that kind of concern. And in doing all these activities, we've really managed to solve a lot of the problems around skepticism and 
And I think that most doctors now are very excited about what we're doing. And I think that's very well reflected by the fact that we actually have about 65-ish doctors, I would say, that work very closely with us in different regards. We have 50 of them that remotely work with us to train our AI through our, our annotation platform. We have another dozen that act as advisors that very closely teach us the clinical implications of each problem area we work on. And we have more beyond that that work with us on a daily basis. So I, I think we're, we're very much at a good point now uh, with perception. And where have you found the most excitement, the most openness to your technology? Where within hospital systems or geographies or within professions, where have you had the most traction and the most opportunity to have your technology get embraced within these systems? One of the most interesting things I've seen is that each different geographic region and many times uh, each specific healthcare group within it has uh, different needs that uh, they really want to optimize for or, or different factors that create a need for the technology. In the case of China, we've seen a great deal of acceptance because they have the issue that they have a lot of people and not nearly enough doctors to serve all those people. So uh, they're very much looking for a solution that can bring massive efficiency increases and uh, improve their ability to serve more patients. Uh, one of our partners there gets 5 million chest x-rays a year from different patients, and they drastically need a way of not only reading all those cases in an accurate and efficient way, but scaling that to serve even more patients beyond that. And our technology can reduce their costs by up to 90% because of the percentage of their population that is just healthy and doesn't require follow-up. Uh, so we've seen a lot of acceptance there. And even within countries like the United States, I mean, there are national screening programs uh, for diseases like lung cancer and breast cancer that create a massive need uh, that have incentivized a lot of groups to invest very heavily in this kind of technology. Because, you know, as I discussed earlier, early detection uh, of, of these cancers and diseases can have massive implications not only in terms of cost, of course, but in terms of the actual patient outcomes associated. So I think our, our approach of diversifying the problems that we go to solve has enabled us to find a great deal of excitement in a lot of different countries. We have to talk about how we met. So you and I met uh, briefly at the Berlin Cube event uh, that was held in May of this year. And you guys were competing in the startup competition for a 1 million euro prize. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience, I mean, you actually presented in front of Steve Wozniak. And what I thought was really fascinating about this competition is it was not, you, you were not competing against other healthcare startups. You were competing against technology solutions that were addressing other industries. And, and three competitors, three finalists of which you guys were one, were pitching to Steve Wozniak to win this 1 million euro prize. Tell me a little bit about how you found out about the Cube event and what that experience was like going through that in that pretty intense period leading up to that presentation with Steve and maybe a little bit of what's happened since then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, to start off, it was uh, an incredible experience. I mean, uh, I had done all these business plan competitions in college. And so finding out about uh, a massive one that you know applies to the best startups in the world and of course, being judged by Steve Wozniak was just the kind of opportunity I couldn't pass up. And we found out about it because uh, our director of business development, Felix, uh, who was at the competition with me, had gone to a luncheon uh, here in San Francisco and had met somebody from Bayer who had heard of Inlytic and, and mentioned this competition and, and told us that we should look into it and uh, try to attend if we could. 
And so we applied for it and, and found that we were one of the 250 startups that got to compete. And once we actually got there, we found that uh, we were kind of operating on, a, a, I'd say, a much shorter time frame than we were expecting that we would, because there's three days of the competition, one day for each round, and you only find out if you got into that round the morning of. Uh, and so uh, each one requires a different pitch. The first one was three minutes, the second was five minutes, the last one was 10 minutes. But one of the very cool things there was just being able to see so many amazing startups from all around the world working on you know, incredible problems in so many different industries. I mean, we saw companies there doing predictive analytics from vocal patterns, uh, who I believe you've actually had on your show before. We've seen companies there that were doing very advanced work with spectrometry, work in factory automation, in space travel, uh, just really incredible things. I mean, the competition was was very uh, you know advanced, and uh, it was exciting to get exposure to such global networking. Of course, the the most incredible aspect of it was uh, you know for me being able to present to a personal hero of mine, Steve Wozniak, was just incredible. I mean, just getting to the finals and being able to be on the same stage as him and and talk to him about what we're working on was just such a meaningful experience to me. Obviously, having him uh, declare us the winner and, and give us a million euros is the kind of thing that uh, I hope I will continue to have experiences that match up to that. It was really incredible. I loved watching you, and I was really thrilled at the opportunity that digital health was really becoming very cool, that these health technologies that you're working on and that many, many, many other companies are working on were becoming cool, mainstream, high-impact solutions that are getting the attention and are able to compete on a stage like that with people coming from crop science and the automotive industry and robotics and and uh, mapping and being able to compete in that sort of environment. Uh, I mean, there were hundreds. I forget how many. I was one of the judges, actually, at the competition. There were hundreds and hundreds of companies that that went through that process in those three days and i was ecstatic when you guys got uh, named by steve to do that one of the things that i was happiest about when you guys were competing there was a q a session obviously where steve got to ask a few questions and one of the questions he had was something i asked you about how did you get this accepted by people and you've gone through how you you did the one-to-ones with the radiologists and and got feedback from them to teach the AI and make it a better solution. And Steve's response was something along the lines of, I tweeted at the time, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but it was something along the lines of, I think we should trust our computers to be smart. And mm. and I think that's a, a really great comment from a person who is one of the founding fathers, one of the most esteemed founding fathers. He actually got an award that day for his lifetime contribution to computing that we really do. We don't need to trust it blindly, but we need to embrace it and find ways to make it better. And I'm thrilled that you guys are, are having such great success with it. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, uh, I love that quote from him. And uh, I think my favorite moment in the Q&A was when he had asked me about the cost of the uh, solutions that we're working on. And we started talking about how really the, the goal of this is to start giving this to developing countries that, that need access but can't afford it, and how we very much intend to do that. And uh, Steve's response was, you know, this is what technology should be about. You know, it, it's just such a meaningful thing to hear that from one of the founding fathers of modern computing uh, that, you know, I'm so glad to have had that experience. So, Kevin, we've got listeners all over the world. You've explained that you have a global strategy. You're working on deployments in various places. 
how can people uh, find out about becoming partners of yours and, and what's the best way to sort of link in with your organization to discuss the potential for projects and, and uh, activities in various parts? Email us at uh, info at com, or even email me personally, Kevin at Enlytic.com. And, uh, you know, we take every inbound very seriously. Uh, we're, we're very excited to work with uh, partners all over the world. If uh, anybody is interested in reaching out, then check out our website and then uh, definitely send us an email. Great. I will have your email address and uh, the info at, at email address as well as uh, the, the website and some of the videos because you guys shared some videos with me in uh, preparation for this call. I, I have the video from Jeremy as well, so I'll make sure those are included in the show notes for this episode. And I'm really excited to see what's going to happen next for you guys. So I have six questions I'd like to ask every guest. Can I jump into those now with you, Kevin? Absolutely. Great. What is a saying, quote, or phrase that motivates you? I think for me, it's probably something that my grandfather uh, used to tell me when I was growing up, uh, to take pride in everything you do. It's a a simple and probably in retrospect obvious thing to think, but uh, it has had an incredible amount of impact in everything I've tackled in that there, there are some things that can be taken less seriously than others, but everything you do is a reflection on yourself. Uh, and likely has some kind of impact down the road. And uh, it's very important to keep that in mind uh, in everything that you do. What advice do you have for others working to innovate in healthcare? I would say that serendipity breeds innovation, that even if you don't come from the healthcare background, you can come from a background with all sorts of random experiences like I did. And all of those things can have relevance and probably have important lessons that can be applied to healthcare. There are important things to keep in mind from legacy healthcare solutions. There are things that have been done right for years, but there are also things that need to be reinvented. And it's important to kind of take lessons from other areas and be daring in applying those things in a controlled fashion to a healthcare environment. What book do you recommend to our listeners? Honestly, for me, uh, one of the most impactful books that I've read is The 80-20 Principle. It's probably a principle that I apply to most things I do. The concept that in many cases, you can get 80% of the value by doing 20% of the work. And it's just you know something that is very realistic advice in the book. Uh, goes very heavily into a lot of examples of that. Great. I got that as the 80-20 principle by Richard Koch. And mm. I'll have a link to that on the website as well. Listeners can always go and pick up a free audiobook from uh, audible.com if they go to uh, the page on the, the, the website. So thanks for recommending that. What tech do you use that you wouldn't want to live without? For me, honestly, it's my iPhone. I wish I had a different answer to that, honestly. But You travel a lot. Is there a particular app that you use or a suite of apps that you go to a lot? Yeah, I would say uh, one, Google Maps. <laughs> Traveling a lot is extremely uh, a lot easier when you have Google Maps. And Evernote is really uh, something I use an incredible amount, switching between my laptop and, and my phone, being able to have constant notes taken at all times and capture new information super useful to me. Uh, Slack, I use very frequently. Skype, I use to, to make all sorts of calls. Um, those are probably the most important ones for me. And of course, Audible, which uh, I believe you've already name dropped, is uh, probably one of my favorite apps because when I'm not talking to people, uh, I'm usually listening to an audiobook. Excellent. If I gave you a check for $5 million to invest in health technology today, how would you invest it besides putting it in analytic? <laughs> Uh, I would probably put it into uh, general AI uh, for healthcare research. And of course, I'm biased, but I really do believe that artificial intelligence is the most important technology in our time. 
And I think that the most important applications of it are going to be in healthcare. So even if the money doesn't go to us, uh, I would like to see it go to somebody that's trying to advance that incredibly important series of developments. Uh, and and honestly, I think that uh, you know it, a nonprofit organization that investigates research into AI for healthcare could make a, a great deal of use out of that kind of money. And lastly, we make a contribution to a charity in appreciation of your time on the show. What charity have you selected? And can you tell me a little bit about what they do? I would like to choose the National Multiple Sclerosis Society. As I mentioned earlier, uh, I have a family history with that, having you know cared for my mother who was bedbound for multiple sclerosis and ultimately passed from complications related to that uh, when I was a teenager. Uh, but the National Multiple Sclerosis Society spends a lot of money and effort uh, into helping people that have that disease live a normal life. And they, you know, do research into finding solutions to that disease. And uh, I mean, they even paid to send my mother to my sister's graduation. And uh, I would love to see the money go to them. Well, Kevin, I'm sorry to hear about your mother. I, too, have a family history and some experience with that disease and was very active in the New Jersey chapter of the MS Society. So is that where your mother was? Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, actually, I'm from New Jersey, so uh, I, I, I guess uh, I would like to personally thank you then. Uh, oh, my pleasure. It, it was it was about 20 years ago. Some of my good friends who I will uh, ping on Facebook, uh, there's some good friends that I made who were fundraisers there. Uh, we did all sorts of things with the MS100 bike ride and a lot of the, the different things. So I was one of the volunteers and involved in a lot of the golf tournaments. And it really, actually, frankly, uh, as a shout out to the MS Society, that was part of the reason I got involved in healthcare after college. I was uh, I studied engineering. Uh, was working for Siemens and really found that that working with healthcare charities and healthcare organizations, I really loved the mission that people had and the purpose that that the organizations and supporters of the MS Society had in doing their work. And uh, it gave me the drive to really work more at the forefront of medicine. So absolutely happy to make a gift to them. We'll even make it to the New Jersey chapter since it was the one that uh, that helped your mother out. And um, uh, thanks for nominating them. Well, thank you very much for doing that. Sure. So, Kevin, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we end? Just to wrap it up, I, I would just say that you know, artificial intelligence is going to have such incredible implications uh, in so many different industries, but especially in healthcare. And and this is not something that is a distant future. This is something that is now. I mean, we already have solutions that you know, in internal studies, are finding cancer two years earlier than humans are. And we already have solutions that in in the wild are are performing, you know, X-ray reads more accurately than human doctors. Uh, and these things are only going to grow in advance. I'm very happy to say that we're all going to experience uh, incredibly fortunate outcomes as a result of that. Well, Kevin, I am really impressed by your work. I love what you guys are doing at Analytic. And uh, thanks so much for taking time to be with us on the show. And uh, keep us posted on your progress. Will do. Thank you very much for having me. There you have it. That's Kevin Lyman, COO and lead scientist of Enlytic. If you want to reach out to Kevin, you'll find his details in the show notes for this episode. Check out all the links to the things we discussed and videos, images, and more by visiting digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 37. While you're online, don't forget to check out Accenture's Health Tech Innovation Challenge. That link can also be found directly on the show notes for this episode. Tune in next week for my conversation with Unity Stokes from Startup Health. He is a fascinating person with a real drive and vision to improve the health for billions of people around the world. You won't want to miss that one. We have more great guests coming up, so be sure to get every episode by subscribing to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in and supporting this platform. You can reach me on Twitter at HealthTechDan and follow the show at DHealthToday. That's all for me for now. Until next time, keep on innovating.